Welcome to Tone Benders. My name is Renee Coronado, and with me today, as always, it's Tim Muirhead. Hey, Tim. Hey, Renee. How you doing? I'm doing good. We've got a whole roundtable today. I'm going to go through the list. I'm going to say hi to everybody one at a time. Claire Pochon is based out of Montreal and is an in-demand dialogue editor for both English and French projects. She's worked on Hollywood projects like Denis Villeneuve's Arrival, for which she was nominated for a Golden Reel, and Jean-Marc Vallée's Dallas Buyers Club, as well as Vallée's upcoming prestige HBO series Sharp Objects. Claire has also cut dialogue on French blockbusters like Bon Cop, Bad Cop 2, and foreign language Oscar-nominated films Barbarian. Invasion and Warwitch. Hey, Claire, how are you? Fine, thank you. Hello, everyone. Next up is Fred Rosenberg. Fred has a long and impressive list of films on his credit list that's loaded with some of the most iconic films of American cinema. He's based out of New York. Fred has worked with some of the world's most renowned directors like Martin Scorsese for Goodfellas, Gangs of New York, Casino, and many more. Spike Lee, Inside Man, Steven Soderbergh, Logan Lucky. All this in addition to prestige TV projects like Boardwalk Empire, Damages, Vinyl, and Netflix's recent She's Gotta Have It. Hey, Fred, how are you, sir? I'm doing okay. Okay. That, that's quite the list. <laughs> I've been lucky. Welcome aboard. Thanks. Next up is Jill Purdy. Jill's been a busy sound editor for more than two decades and is currently affiliated with Sound Dogs in Toronto. She's been the dialogue editor or supervising sound editor on many of our favorite projects, including the recent Guillermo del Toro film, The Shape of Water, that just won the Oscar. That, the Oscar. Best picture, yeah, the best Aaron Sorkin's Molly's Game and Snow White and the Huntsman, in addition to many other films and TV series. Jill has also had a long collaboration with director Darren Aronofsky. I can't even talk today. <laughs> with director Darren Aronofsky as dialogue editor on his films Requiem for a Dream, Black Swan, and Noah. And additionally, Jill was co-supervising sound editor on Aronofsky's recent Mother. Hi, Jill. How are you? Hi, I'm good. Thanks. Next up is Michael Marusis. Michael's a top dialogue editor working out of London, and it's midnight in London right now. He has many credits on large action films like X-Men First Class, Kick-Ass 2, and Kingsman, The Secret Service, and the sequel, uh, nominated Darkest Hour, as well as About Time, Jane Eyre, and The Hippopotamus. This year, he was nominated at the MPSC Golden Reel Awards for Outstanding Achievement in Dialogue Editing in both the TV series and film categories for his dialogue work on the series Black Mirror that I was up until 1 a.m. my time last night watching, and the film Darkest Hour. Welcome, Michael. How are you, sir? I'm very good, thank you. This is a star-studded cast yeah. we've got going on here. I'd just like to say that Michael was one of the first guests we ever had on this podcast uh, back in 2012. And uh, since he was on the show, his career has taken off. He's working on all these huge films. And I'd just like to say it has nothing to do with his skill and hard work. It was all being on this podcast. That was funny. I was thinking back about that because I was wondering if when he had recovered from cutting out all my ers and ums from the last time. So I'm going to be trying... <laughs> Be really concise this time and not, uh, uh, um, uh. Um, uh, ooh, ah. Uh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's a great privilege and it's an honor to have all of you here. I'm, I'm in awe of the fact that we got all of, all of you together. You know, this is all Tim's handiwork as far as, as scheduling and coordinating. And, um, you know, we rescheduled this once, but it was super worth it to have everybody here. I like that we're like halfway through the podcast time and we've only done all their credits. Yes, thank you very much for everybody for coming on. We're honored to have you. When you get started, what is your, uh, what's your typical routine as, you, uh, as you're just diving in? I guess, Fred, we can start with you. What, what, what's, your, what's, your, uh, what's your starting workflow? Usually, I look at an assembly of all of the microphones. You know, if there's five microphones per take, you'll have 50, 60 channels, and all you're doing is going through and eliminating the crap. There's always a mixed channel that they use for editing. Do you use it? Sometimes. You know, if it's good. 
why why recreate the wheel? That's what they're looking for. But you know, if there's a better recording, I'll grab that and I'll use that. So basically, the very first thing is going through and eliminating, simplifying, you know, winnowing it down to the useful channels. And then as you go through it, you decide which ones are the best recordings. And then I begin to think about, well, how is this going to be mixed? What's the easiest way to mix this? Because sometimes what seems to be the best sounding channel when you go through a whole scene to have the continuity in sound quality, you may choose a different set of microphones. And so I'll put those things together, you know, keeping in mind both what's going to sound best when processed and what's going to be the easiest for the mixer to deal with. How about that? <laughs> You're speechless. Oh, yeah. Is yours pretty similar? First of all, I get rid of all the mix of the, the sound guy. You know, I get rid of this because the usually the, the sound mixer doesn't want it. I think it's good for the picture editor, but normally I need to have all the, you know, the separate microphones. And then we prepare the dialogue um, screening. So instead of having 100 tracks, I try to put it in down to 24 so uh, that it's uh, it's it's easier to watch. And And, and this is where I go and get some alt. Whenever I, I screen it and when I see something that I don't like, I go and get an alt and propose an alt right away uh, before the screening. And, and I usually also edit all of the wild sound that's been made. I mean, Walla's dialogue, no, no ambience. Or, if it's been recorded, I sort of place it so that we know it's here because usually it's done for a purpose and uh, Sometimes it happens that people say, well, why did he re-record that? He, he did a wide line here. And, but I tend to, to prevent uh, making ADR. I'm working on Denis Arcan's latest film, and he said, I like ADR, so I want to have as much ADR as possible. But it's, <laughs> it's rarely the case. I never heard. I think he likes to... I've never heard that. Huh? No, I've never heard anyone say that before. <laughs> give me, give me loads of idea. There's some actors that that I guess they do prefer it. It's a rumor, but but people like That's Tom a Hanks, rarity. yeah, try to improve their performances even after the set. Um, but it is a rarity. Uh, most actors hate it because it's it's difficult because they're not in the in the scene. I, I can only think of one actor I've ever worked with who really liked ADR. Al Pacino. I did a uh, Richard III with him. And, you know, he, he just wanted to get in there and reinterpret every line. And he would, and they'd be great. And it was like, okay, so which one of these 12 incredibly good performances are we going to use? Yeah, and, you know, comedies will do that too. When You, you, you can take an over-the-shoulder shot and ad-lib a whole bunch of different lines on it and just kind of see what hits. And so, you know, ADR gets used in that, in that respect a lot too. Uh, how much time does it take to, to go through that, that initial kind of sorting and culling process for, for let's say, a feature film? Usually I'd, I like to have three days before this, the first screening just to pick up all the things I want to play. It's very 
of course, it's not edited, it's just assembled. In the audio conform, there is no problem, then three days will be enough for me. Do you guys uh, resync the, the boom with the, with the mics? Do you do that? I see you sighing. Yeah, that is a misery. It depends on the job. I don't know what it is that they're doing on set. We didn't used to do that before, did we? I mean, it's a fairly new thing. And now it's a, another thing that we have to do that, that takes a lot of time. <laughs> well, I think it has something to do with the, the metadata and, and the way that the channels you know, open up into the assemblies. It's not really a problem with the recording because the mixed channel is made from all those individual channels and you don't have that problem generally in the mixed channel. Can you spell out that problem a little more clearly for us? Are you talking about the time differential? There's a small time difference, a different phase difference between all of the different channels because, uh, because of the distance from the microphones to the subject, that's one place where the time difference comes in. And you get a certain amount of phasing between the different channels. But when they're recording on set and making that mixed channel that they use for editing, that channel usually you know, sometimes you'll hear it, but it's way more pronounced when we have the split tracks and we're playing them. And then we wind up having to resync them. And, and it's, it's really a losing proposition. It's basically you wind up having to decide which channel I'm going to use at any given time to avoid having multiple channels playing at the same time so that they don't cancel, that they don't cause phasing. I find um, I, it interesting that well, it, lately for me, when I'm, when I'm going through that process, it doesn't matter what I do to the tracks, they always sound phasey. It's extremely frustrating. doesn't matter. I can zoom right in, well, everything completely, you know, inverted, lined up, whatever. And it's, it still right. sounds like crap, honestly. So what's the uh, rationale for opening up more than one channel then? What's interesting with me these days, and I was going to bring this up a little earlier, is that um, in the recent past, I've, I've been asked to cut. This didn't happen in the past with me, but there was, one, there was one show where they wanted the boom cut for everything and then the labs mod cut. Regardless, they wanted, that's what they wanted. So there was a lot of that phasing, inversion, mic alignment that was really frustrating. And I didn't think it was necessary, but that's what they asked for. Then there's another show that wants all the labs mod cut and that's it, <laughs> so it's, which is a whole other scenario. And, and then there's, there's ones that just want the boom as much as possible. And then you just add in that, that lab if you need it. I've just been finding more and more lately, it's about the organization and the alignment than it is about anything creative. I mean, all your time is taken up going through, you know, we get more and more tracks. You know, it used to be you'd get a stereo track and you'd, you'd deal with that. Now it's hundreds of tracks, like you said, and you've got to take all the time to weed through it all, figure out what's going to be the most consistent, then do the yes. mic alignment. And then you, you're left with, you know, such a fraction of what you could be using to, to work creatively, which I find extremely frustrating. I, I, I'm confused. You used the word relative to dialogue editing creative? 
ADD. Like I find, I find fixing things and meticulous things um, creative in my mind. But uh, I hear what you're saying. Do any of you get an opportunity to go back and, and speak to the production sound people, the ones that are that are generating the tracks that you're editing? How often does that happen? What's that process look like? On the jobs that I've supervised, when I've got a long-term, ongoing relationship, yes. But on most dialogue jobs, you know, you're just a pair of hired hands. You come in for five weeks, you, you, you don't get to go to the mix even nowadays. Well, what kind of things do you wish that the production sound people knew about what you're doing with their tracks? Or with these tracks, I should say. They belong to everybody. One thing I'd say is never bother recording room tone. And the thing I'd love more and more which I ask for more and more, is to get them to get a clean clapperboard because we started using that more and more for, like, impulse responses. Uh, and it can be really cool if you're sort of trying to match in, uh, well, matching in ADR to a scene, but also sometimes with, if you're using the radios and you want to give it a bit more room to match it into the booms and stuff. If you can get the clapperboard from the scene and it's got a bit of nice, you know, a bit wide, then it can be really cool for putting that into Ultiverb and... Uh, giving it uh, some sort of natural reverb to match into it. But it's so hard getting a clean clapperboard. There's always someone talking over it and all that. So if the, And that would be so much easier to control the set just for like two, three seconds ago. Give us three seconds, like, clean clap. And that would be so much more useful to me than uh, room tone, which is always full of noise and, like, doesn't really match anything. Because it's always, as everyone knows, it's your, you, when you get fill, it's for that specific angle. And so if they did the room tone wild track and it's just in a different position, it doesn't really match into anything, for me anyway. But Don't you use an ambience match <laughs> in Rx? No, I don't. I do if I'm absolutely stuck, but I don't... It always adds, it always adds too much shh to, to everything. If there's any movement in it, it seems to pick up on that and make it a generic part of the tone. So it's always more hissy than the original, I think. But it's good if you're absolutely stuck sometimes, but... Sometimes if there is a, a telephone conversation, for instance, and we want to patch the, the ambience of the guy while he's talking over the, on the phone, while there's a, when somebody's talking on the phone, it's filtered telephone, and then we're on the guy who's actually in the room. Well, I, I, I like to use it. it. It saves me some time. It's a fair white noise generator. <laughs> ADR guys seem to like using it. It's a quick way of doing uh, fill for ADR. Is it when they do use it in that way? I use it constantly, but you know, I'll use it in weird ways too. Like for instance, I will, I'll use it to uh, find and create a noise noise profile to help with denoising. So I'll do that kind of thing with it. Or sometimes uh -huh. I'll use um, spectral repair just to to lose a piece of the spectrum, and then I'll use the ambience match. Just kind of, I'll I'll just highlight the piece of it, so I won't necessarily be going across the entire frequency band with it. Um, I'll just use it for uh, for patching holes and that type of thing. I didn't use to. It's the first time I'm using it so much because I got the the Isotop, uh, RX six, and I thought that it was. It's improved. It's been improved for this thing, yeah. but it, it still doesn't match like a spectral copy and paste. So you know, if you can find a piece of 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 clarity that's you know you don't have to get the entire frequency range you can just get the piece and so what I'll do is I'll go find the piece I want to delete and delete it and then just highlight that and then move that over to a part that I want to copy and just copy and paste that part of the frequency spectrum back over I find that works better than spectral repair for for those types of fixes at least in my world um, I'm sorry than um, than the ambience match does but 
um, you know, I, you know, I'll use whatever works. I'm really amazed at the number of tracks we are getting now. I get very discouraged when I receive a, a movie with a hundred tracks and it's, it's all, it, it, it's like a, it's like a physical job for, for, for a whole day. You like, you get rid of everything. It's, or, or, or you're like in a forest and you're just making your way uh, to the, to the thing. And I think I sort of get mad at the guy who did the conform said, why, why do you come with so many tracks? You know, is there something you... you... I've, I've just thought of what I'm going to suggest to the next sound recordist that okay. I talk to, that they use a Nagra 4 <laughs> to record everything. You know, we'll have two nice tracks. But where does that come? Does that come from the directors, or the ADs, or does that come from the production sound people themselves? As far as having, as far as loving everybody is, is, is the problem that you guys are running into, correct? The problem for me, I find, is that a lot of recordists nowadays don't know how to use a boo. I just did um, She's Gotta Have It, and Spike Lee shoots everything multi-camera. There's always a wide shot. So the boom is a million miles away, and we can never use it. So every character has to be loved if you want to use the production performance. Sometimes you have two booms and none of them is on mic. I, I, I was working on a, on a TV series and, and there was this scene, great scene, and there are two booms and none of them are on mic. And the, the lavaliers are, you know, noisy. So I tried using uh, RX, uh, you know, the D. Russell stuff. This is why we have ADR. That's yes, but when you have a when you have a, a director who's allergic to ADR, then he says, "Well, well, either they get crappy, you know, off mic sound, or they get ADR." Yeah. One thing that was surprises me is um, plant mics are very rarely useful. They very rarely sound good. Whereas you think that would be the the, the solution to, you know, when you got the white, you can't get the boom in, but. There, there must be, you know, considering gloves can sound amazing now and they're so good at hiding them and all that sort of stuff. But um, you imagine you'd be able to get a plant mic in a pretty good position, but I've, I can't remember the last time I actually made use of a plant mic. They always sound weird or... You know what's funny? So I watched that little documentary about the King's Speech where I don't know who the production sound guy was, but he's a legendary person and he, uh, you know, he was plant micing everything, I guess, for that film because they didn't want to use very many loves. Um, now, I don't know what the, what the back-end you know, editorial process was on that, but I, I've been thinking more and more about plant mics lately because of, of the whole virtual reality world where you can't get a boom up because you've got a camera that's shooting 360. And so you know, my, my thought is that you know, obviously you have to love people if you can, um, but if you're, if you're trying to cover a little bit of some candid you know, or you know, reality style, anything like that, plant mics are almost your only option. So I, I'm kind of, I'm interested to hear more about what works and what doesn't with regards to what you, when you're coming across plant mics. I find they've been useful in, in cars most recently. They don't move. But that also has that weird, that has that weird quality that works in a car because it's, you know, it's all bearing yeah. off everything. I don't know too much about what they are. I'd be intrigued to know what plant mics, what, are you, what mics are used for plant mics and uh, why they sometimes sound odd and... A cardioid. And it has a slightly directional pattern. And if the actor's not right in front of it, goodbye. I, I haven't run into too many jobs where they were using plants. They did on the series that I did last year. 
high maintenance. And you're absolutely right. It was never usable. And that's just purely based on the distance from the actor? Yeah. For one word, they were on mic and then they moved off mic and it was unusable. But that's a... I think it has to do with the planning. If if you know where they're going to be hitting their marks, then you could use them. But if it's, if the actor is moving around a lot, then it's useless. That's why you have a boom man holding the, the <laughs> microphone over the person while they move. So you, we've been talking about RX a little bit. I wonder if we could maybe... Uh zoom in on that a little bit. How much leeway do you guys, are you given to clean up the dialogue? What What are the re-recording mixers asking you to deliver? It depends on them. Some of them say, don't do this. I denoise. I'm the one who's doing that. You're not uh, a sound mixer. And some of them, you know, like to uh, to do it. But this is this is the problem, though. This is what scares people because they think RX means denoising. And for me, I use RX all the time, and it's not really about denoising. It's about getting rid of bumps and bangs and clicks and cleaning up that dialogue. It's not denoising. You know, that's that's why people get re-recording mixes get really scared, especially because if they're running Cedar or something in the studio, if we do one level of processing denoise, for some reason it doesn't work as well when they want to take it further. You, you um, mentioned Cedar. Does anyone actually like the sound of cedar. They do in studios over here, yeah. Really? God, it sounds awful. You know, most of the New York studios, they have it, and they never use it. What's what's the preferred tool? Nothing. You know, ADR, if it's that bad. You know, if you're in a New York City environment and there's traffic on your track, well, what do you expect? If you want it to be quiet, then then you loop it. I kind of love that headspace. I talk about that with sound effects all the time about how it's a noisy world out there. And I'm, you know, when I'm recording stuff and putting it in my library for sound effects and for sound design, like I'm not going in there and surgically scrubbing it all out. It's amazing how much noise can play in the context of a mix in, in all kinds of environments. I was just going to say, um, RX for me, I, I, I'll use it to the extent where I think that I'm the only one that can discern what's happening. If I think it's it's sounding phalange or it's artifacting or anything, I never go to that extreme. It's very subtle, and I use it mostly yeah. to decrackle or to take out, like you said, Michael, like the the thunks and the bumps. Something that if you deliver it, no one's going to know that you you've sat there and kind of denoised or processed or or done that extent to it. Or that's my goal anyway. To still make it sound as organic as as the original recording was, but still making a, a difference to it if it if it's needed. I'll use the the no noising just to see how the track will work once it is treated. I never send it no noise. That's their job. Dialogue Isolate's quite an interesting one though, that's come out in RX6, because yeah. that, that is pretty amazing. And it's one of those things that's so good, you've got to be really careful with it. Like any new tool, it'd be easy to get carried away with that because it doesn't feel like it leaves any artifacts. Unless, you know, you can hit it quite hard and it just cleans it up in a much nicer way than denoise. Oh man, I think it can get real grungy real fast to me anyway. I do. I think I think it 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 doesn't get that swirly sound in it that you get with It doesn't um, get swirly. It gets it gets crunchy to me to my ear anyway. Uh one place I do use it though is is when I'm doing sports stuff and I have um play-by-play announcers calling the goal. I find that the the dialogue isolate does a good job of pulling their voices out of crowds roaring on top of them. Um, so in that spot, I use it for that. But when I'm talking about broadband noise, I find it real crunchy and up in the mids, like in a big hurry to me. I, I like to use it to uh, remove the saliva thing. And RX6, there is the mouth declick. And the declick used to 
make the plosive uh, syllable sound uh, soft, but with the but this one it doesn't. It doesn't. Um, I'm saying, this, but I, I I really like it. I like it for you know when you have a narration, you know, a, a, a comment over, and it, there's a lot of clicks and stuff, and it it really does a great job. I mean, I used to remove everything with a little pen because people can't stand it when there are saliva thing uh, in the dialogue. At first, I used to be, well, that's live, but we got used to that kind of sound really uh, clean and uh, perfect. And but this is the thing people say about that, like, oh, you, um, oh, you shouldn't take all that out because, you know, it's it's natural. I've sort of thought about this, and it feels like recorded sound is different to the way we actually hear it. And when you hear someone talking in real life, you don't hear them going, you know, you sometimes, if they do a pronounced one, like, well, you know, then you, you do hear it. But in real life, you don't hear those things. So I sort of, I sort of tend to think about, like, if you see a definite pronounced movement, like, or if it's a really intimate sort of close-up scene and you need to see that thing, then you, you're sort of nice to hear that. But other than that, I don't think it's sort of making it less real. I believe it's a product of the microphones that they're using. I was going to say that. Yep. And the EQ of those microphones. It's also a factor of the digital recording is still a problem, whether it's the anti-aliasing, is that even exist anymore in recording? But there are frequencies that are just severely boosted that makes that more of a problem. Yeah, you have to reduce a lot of that, all those little teeny ticks, because part of when you're mixing it, you have to, they're, they're boosting the mid-range and upper mid-range to, to go so that your dialogue can be heard through the music, and that may accentuates all those ticks. So I find that a huge amount of time is spent going through every syllable to find the smallest little crackles because once it gets boosted for the mix, it's unacceptable. With voiceover recordings anyway, when I'm using you know U87 or something that's just going to do that, um, I've got a RX process where I'll just run it through the mouth, you click, and then copy my old files and write the new ones in there and reopen the Pro Tools session and I'm good to go. It's like they never happened. So is RX the universal tool now? Is anybody using anything other than RX for this type of stuff? Not that I know. Nope. I can't without it. Yep. <laughs> I'm making jokes with my uh, colleagues. I say I'm like a, a dialogue editor in French is a monteur parole. And porte-parole is a person who uh, makes a speech about something. C'est le porte-parole. That's kind of an interesting point. Well, the different languages will have different amounts of, uh, of, they'll have different vocal sounds to them. And so French probably has, I, I, you can tell me if I'm wrong, but it seems like French would have more of the kind of spitty sounds to it than, than English might. But we have more spits. We spit. <laughs> <laughs> there might be something in that, actually, Renny, because I worked on a film recently which had um, Russian in it and some actual Russian language and some English. And oh, I had to be so much more careful with what clicks I got rid of because it especially when they were talking Russian, because they don't know what they're saying, so you don't know as much about how you're affecting what it sounds like to a Russian person. But it definitely felt integral to the delivery of the word, so I was much more cautious about removing clicks, and especially on the start when there was like a tongue roll or something like that. Um, very different to English, obviously. God forbid you work on something in a click language. Right. 
<laughs> Black Panther. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Black Panther had tons of that in it. You removed all the dialogue. <laughs> <laughs> or, or how did you approach that in The Shape of Water? Oh, the Russian? Well, no, just the, you know, the, the um, I guess the, uh, the creature language. Oh, the creature language. Well, that was completely derived outside of it. So my job was just cutting it out of the tracks. That's funny. I just had a I just had a conversation with a, a student today asking me the same thing, like how I dealt with um, Sally Hawkins um, and, <laughs> and Jones as the creature. I'm like, well, it was me cutting out any of their utterances from the tracks. And then, but the the Russian thing, there was some Rus- Russian language in that, and I felt the same way. I didn't want to clip too much of the heads of words or or whatever, because I wasn't sure if it was inherent to that, to that language. But I mean, I always think that everything in a foreign language sounds so much better than English. It's like that with crowd ADR. Crowd ADR is so much better in foreign languages than English. English, it sounds rubbish, because you know exactly what they're saying, whereas when you don't know what they're saying, it becomes a, an evocative sound effect, you know, like if it's French or whatever. Um, it immediately helps the ambience of the scene, whereas... Uh, you always feel an inclination when it's English to sort of tuck it down. <laughs> so you don't hear what they're saying. Cringe when you listen to it on its own. Like you can just listen yeah. to Spanish crap. I actually yeah. record a, a fair amount of gibberish. Yeah, I have my background actors speak in gibberish. You know, it takes a good actor to do that on the fly. Well, what they have to do is they have to have an intention. And, and that comes through in the voice where, you know, if they do all this research, the, the group actors, and it, it, I let them do it. You know, it helps them, but it's kind of useless because you're, li- you're, you're listening for the right sound. It's a sound effect, really, of a human voice. And, and, Sometimes using, you know, someone going give a gob of gooba, you know, it works better than English. Do any of you do any treatments to S's? S's are the banes of everyone's existence, right? So how do you, do you just leave them be and let it, get, let it happen, happen in the mix? Or like, what do you do with, with S's? What I'll do is I will manually lower the S's. DSers, I find, you know, if you use them on top of doing it manually, works best. And you just clip gain them back? Yeah. I will volume graph them out. I will I won't clip gain them though. I'll I'll actually go in and notch them down. And if I have the time to do it, I'll I'll be really religious about it, but um I'll do the most gratuitous yeah. ones for but I never use DSer. Um I never use DSer, but um I do the volume duck a bit on them, although sometimes I'll just be wary with wary with that because some mixers don't like it. They reckon they can hear a chattering a bit. So um I'll sort of go easy with that. But I'd, if you go in RX, um, sometimes you can see it's just white hot, or sometimes the S has got a whistle to it, or something like that. And so it's oh yeah, I do it gently, really gently, because it's obviously rendering it. But sometimes that's quite good for taking the sort of sting out of it a bit. Um, and then you do just a gentle duck in volume automation. So let's say you guys have all been hired by a production with a director and a mixer that you've never worked with before. What are the uh, you know? first things that you want to get the ground rules on when you're talking to the re-recording mixer on how they want it delivered? What are the main checkpoints you guys want to make sure you're on the same page with? Michael? Uh, so director or just re-recording mixer? Let's go with re-recording mixer to start with. Sharing a template, uh, making sure we're on the same you know wavelength in terms of how I'm going to present my tracks to them. Yeah, I don't know. It's just I've, I've worked with different mixers, but it's quite a sort of standardized way of working. I don't, I'm, I don't 
if I'm going to try something unusual with plugins, then I'd, I'd flag that. But generally, they're sort of, you know, use similar plugins these days because it sort of doesn't, it's sort of more trouble than it's worth to try a sort of fancy new plugin because then you've got to depend on the theatre getting that in or having to bring your own. So, do you get a template from the recording mixer or? No, I, I I send a template to the re-recording mixer and just say, is that cool with you? Is there anything here that looks you're not sure about? Feel free to play around with the routing and how you want to output it and all that sort of stuff. But um, to show how I break it, the tracks into booms and radios and PFX and just so they know how many tracks they're dealing with and that I'm not going to turn up on premix day with a million tracks and they can't, can't deal with it. <laughs> just so there's no nasty surprises, basically. I'm going to let you guys talk because I work with the same people over and over and over again. Me too, but when I, whenever I, it happens that I change, I usually give him a call to see what he likes, but then I find, why did I give him a call? Because sometimes it makes things more complicated. <laughs> but yeah. it, the person just said, well, why don't you do that? But usually people say, just do it the way you usually do. I, I just work differently if I'm working for a, a TV or if it's a, for a feature film. That is, I'm going to leave for a, a TV series. I'm going to uh, separate all the booms and then, you know, I'm going to make blocks of a, a, a block for booms and a block for... Um, whereas on a feature film, I will have the boom and the chef underneath it. You know what I mean? It's not separated. It's really... Uh, I'm not going to make, make different blocks of... You do it by takes. Right. Do, do, do you usually leave all the, the mics underneath it or do you make separate? No. No. I, I make choices. So as you make those decisions, are you, you're muting and hiding the, the, the regions or are you just straight deleting them or...? Well, you always carry the original expand. So if you do need to get other tracks, but I, I, sort, of, um, I sort of think it's... Pointless, but it just makes me feel reassured as I have sort of strip tracks. So I have boom strip tracks and radio strip tracks. So I, I kind of get rid of, if it's really obviously like an empty track or something, I'll delete it. But then as I'm going through cleaning up stuff, I'll put stuff into these strip tracks below, like the boom strips are just below my boom tracks and stuff. So if, you know, sometimes you have a change of heart or something, you're like, oh, actually, no, I want to go with that. And it's easier rather than going back to the expand and put everything in there. But yeah, I try and be quiet. You make a choice. Don't sort of, you know, leave everything up there because it just it looks much better when you finished it. That you know, it, what's on there is active. It's not all loads of muted things that you well, you might want to hear this, you might want to hear that, and you you make that choice. Depends on how much time they have for mixing. If if they've got a five week, six week mix, let them have everything. You know, or because uh, typical mix nowadays for a feature, if you get four weeks, is kind of the standard. Unless you're working on a huge budget, you know, uh, if you're working on TV series, you're not going to leave them choices. They don't want to spend time listening to different possibilities. You are the editor. You figure out what is going to work. And, you know, if, if they don't like your opinion, they should be hiring somebody else, you know. Do any of you use color in any specific ways? Coloring tracks or regions? Like, there was one thing, like with alts, my alts were always green, bright green. So, you know, as you go through the session, you just sort of just like, right, you need to flag that, flag that. Uh, yeah, I've sort of got a very specific color code thing because it really, uh, and I think mixers like it too, but I think it makes it really clear to sort of like, this is, I've treated this, that's that color. 
uh, I've slightly shifted the time. Like if I phase match the radios and stuff, I'll make them yellow so I know that, that they're in tune with that and just different messages that are just quite good to look at and uh, flag flag to the mixer. And remind yourself as you're going through as well so it instantly tells you if someone goes, is that, is that different? It's like, yeah, it's an alt, I can see it. So Every time I put an alt, I put it in red. Everything I add, I put it in red. And uh, if I put a cheat, it's in red. But if it's one of their cheats, one that the picture editor puts, then it's in yellow. Do you separate the the booms? You make like a set of booms and then a set of uh, mics, or do you put the uh, boom? Yeah, I separate mine. Four booms, six radio tracks. And then you checkerboard for perspective? Yeah, yeah. But it's not, you know, a, a, a lab is a lab, you know. Uh, sure. Whatever value the, the, plant, the take is, it's still a lab, so it's not that important. If you separate the, the all the the mics, you don't need to do a, the layout the, the same way when you put all of the mics together. Mm-hmm. Because as I say, a mic, whether it comes from a general or close-up, it's a mic. It's not going to sound very different, mm-hmm. I think. There are instances where I'll only checkerboard the booms because they have a lot of room. And the lobs will be clean enough that, you know, you, you just keep the same characters on the same track. Uh, it, but even with, with I find with, uh, with the lobs that from take to take, sometimes I feel that they're going to need uh, sufficiently different EQ that I'll split it to a different mm. channel. But... Um, you know, it's just a. I play it by ear. I don't have any hard yeah. and fast rules. And for a feature film, uh, just for the dialogues, how many trucks do you send to them? You know, I'll have sixteen, but I don't usually use all of them. Jill, how many are you delivering? I go anywhere between eight and sixteen usually. Um, yeah. Depends on on the show on the on the. Mixer as well. Like I'm still a big fan of checkerboarding just to be safe because I just find it's easy enough for the mixers to pull, you know, pull everything, compress the not, not compress it, but um, the number of tracks or put, you know, mix and match regions on tracks if they want to work that way. But it's it's not as easy to split them out if they want it out. So I always I still checkerboard. I'm still um, old school that way. And that includes the production effects as well. No, I'll usually have I usually have you know eight to sixteen dialogue. Um, two to four PFX. I'll have tone tracks just in case. So my big thing is I'll, I'll check with the mixer. Sometimes uh, some mixers want their tracks mod cut, which I find very disconcerting. But in that case, they want separate tone tracks. So I'm going through and creating production tone really? and putting those on separate tracks. Yeah. Yeah. And then there's some that want, you know, the fill within the tracks, which is, you know, the way it sh- should be done, in my opinion. And I also have, um, you know, FUTS tracks, strip tracks but yeah it's mostly it's mostly the the dialogue and the pfx but and more and more tone tracks for who i'm working with and i i don't usually separate my my booms i don't have a block of booms and a block of labs usually but i'll keep you know if, if a lab is being played with a boom i'll keep it you know uh, on the next track um and depending on the scene or or the quality of the track i'll keep labs per character on the same track it just depends on you know it's depends on the show or the preference of the mixer. Um, I'm more and more, 
I'm asking the mixer ahead of time what their template is or what, what I'm going to I'll let them know what I'm planning on delivering and go from there because um, more and more these days it's like, oh, I prefer it this way. And you kind of find out too late in the process, whereas it used to be just deliver what you're delivering and they'll, they'll make it work, right? Yeah. It's interesting. A lot more variables these days. What are the types of things that you wish the picture editors knew about what your job was um, to make your jobs easier or to make or or to you know to make the whole project better? Sometimes they they put so many that do not work, and when they say it's, <laughs> that it's it, the performance is good, but it's out of sync, and they said it doesn't matter, and it's it's difficult. I try to resync it and. I said, and they said, well, he's turned, you know, the character is something, what he's saying. Yeah, boy, that drives me nuts. Huh? <laughs> that drives me nuts. And there are so many picture editors who put a lot of offs that do not work properly. And I tried to make it work. And then I, I, I said, well, but, you know, um, um, Denis who um, he asked me to do something to remove that. I had a... He was he was using a singular, and I I had to change uh, one word, and I said, well, I found where he said it, it instead of saying un, he, he, he was supposed to say des for pluriel, you know, and so I, I, I tried to find I found something, and I said it, it works fine through the sound, but it's off sync, and he said I don't care about uh, he sent me a thing and he said. It's marvelous because I don't care about the sink. I'm like an Italian. I mean, said so I'm like Italian. <laughs> it doesn't matter, but it matters to me. It matters ever more in the final mix when it's on a big screen and it suddenly looks absolutely terrible, <laughs> and everyone gets worried about it. Given that everyone watches everything on their phone nowadays. So what other kind of things do you wish that the picture editors knew or would do? I mean, I, I do get bothered by the picture cheats where I, I know that the picture editor thinks they're being a genius by putting this alt in and it's just horrendous or there's an overlap <laughs> involved. It's, it's just, yeah. I was just wondering if you guys had any advice for people coming up, if you uh, have any interactions with younger dialogue editors, some uh, pitfalls for people to avoid. Yeah, rookie mistakes. Don't do it. <laughs> well, the best bits of advice, this goes along with the OCD thing, is presumption is the mother of all. <laughs> so if you ever find yourself going, I, I presume that's a, then double check, because that's, that's the good thing with dialogue editing, is you have to double and treble check everything, basically. I always think it's particularly with ADR, when you think of like putting down ADR lists and sending out sheets and stuff, and sometimes you've got like big name actors who cost an absolute fortune to get in and if you miss something it's almost like not worth thinking about really um so you have to be really really thorough and uh, make sure you don't miss anything like that yep and actors will fight you on the adr list too my advice is the complete opposite of that that you can always bring the f back in and get them to do it <laughs> you know if you really need it get them back in it's not on you. It's all right when the director says that and he needs him back, but when we fucking do it, it's a different, it's a different matter, I'd say. I don't think they're quite so understanding. I wouldn't know what to say. I'd say just, you know, you have to be patient. It's a, it's a work of patience. The work, a very meticulous thing. Um, if you don't like being meticulous, then don't do it because you're going to suffer. Jill? Yeah, I I mean, my advice to to young editors is is just to if they want to really want to do it, just to be persistent. It's it's not it's not so much advice in terms of cutting because I rarely I rarely have time or rarely have spent time 
with with editors just starting out to know what their tracks are like, to be honest. I don't know what I don't know what they would deliver these days. Um, my advice is always I just explain what I do and the love of it, because it's I mean, it's grueling if you don't have a passion for it. I mean, it's long hours. It's, you know, no planning. It's the whole thing. And if you really want to break into it, you have to be persistent and uh, love what you're doing. I'd say another thing as well, because Jill touched upon this about, and we've talked very techie and, you know, you know, about RX and all this sort of getting rid of clicks and stuff. But I think it is a really creative role at times as well. And I think um, as well as being tech savvy and knowing about RX and all that sort of stuff, I think it's quite an important skill of a dialogue editor is being able to interpret the material. You know, ADRs, you know, marking up ADR, um, it's not just technical stuff, but it's making creative suggestions. And sometimes it can almost feel like you're, uh, this is going to sound ahead of my station, but like a sort of post-production script editor in a way. It's the last chance to help make little tweaks to the script and stuff. And if, it's not always like that on every film. Some directors are not interested in your input in that way. But other times directors are, and they really want your, your, your feedback on stuff. And it can become really creative in that way. So I think those skills of interpreting material and understanding material uh, are really useful as, as well as how good you are with Rx and Pro Tools and stuff. So the two go together, I think. There are some creative time, really. I mean, sometimes I, I got to work with a director saying, here, enjoy yourself. Have fun with the material. Try to create something. It's not in all film. And I noticed that if I work with big names, I don't have any creation, any creative uh, latitude at all. It's just like do what we've done and don't don't go away from what the guide track is. I, I prefer to work on lesser uh, on small uh, budget films because people are sort of messy and we sort of create all together. We, we I feel like I'm more participant to the the whole thing to the creative stuff rather than on big big budget films. Fair enough. Yeah, it's a collaborative process, and you know. I, it's it's super inspirational to to sit and hear everyone's stories and and just kind of sit back and just witness the um, the meticulous effort that it takes that, that that you all are describing that it takes to to execute this kind of stuff. It is uh, it's unsung heroic work for sure. Um, people recognize when it or, or I guess people get emotionally upset when it's not done well and they never see it when it's perfect. And, uh, and, you know, kudos to all of you for, for, for doing it at such a high level. Yeah, it's definitely, it's, when people ask about what you do, I think it it's, must sound more impressive when people say about sound effects and I oh, do car chases and stuff. And we go, um, I do the dialogue. It's like, the dialogue's already there. What have you done to it? <laughs> what have you done to it? Like, oh, no, 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 no. You, know. like, you have no idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you never will. <laughs> I was going to ask one last question, if you may. Um, Go ahead. You guys work at home, or do you work in uh, places, uh, post-production places? I never work at home unless I have to. What about I don't you? leave the house unless I have to. I stay at home. <laughs> I, I, you know, my I stay at home as much as possible. Like I'll go to a mix, I'll go to loop, but I just prefer to stay at home. And I find that the older I've gotten, the more I'm just letting it go. Like I'm letting. I don't have pages and pages of notes, of dialogue notes or anything. I can let it go and let let the filmmakers deal with their process. And uh, I, I feel like I, it's a luxury for me to be able to work at home. 
but I'm, you know, I'm, I'm kind of introverted that way. So it suits my personality. And, and I, I've learned to, to love working at home. I didn't used to, I used to like the, the schedule of going to an office and coming home and having that separation, but, uh, I can separate myself now and I, I prefer working at home. Okay. And do you, okay. are, are you at home? I used or to, you- I used to do a, a bit of home and a bit outside and now I'm only working at home except for Jean-Marc Vallée's film, uh, TV series. I had to work outside because, uh, for security reason, I think we have to work in a specific building and not go out of it and not even have the internet. I, I miss, uh, that this companionship, you know, I miss going into the other room and say, Hey, I, I did something here. Do you, do you think it shows or do you, what do you like what I did or how would you do this? I, I miss that the exchange of competence that we can have with other uh, dialogue editors. Michael, are you working at home or? Yeah, I do both. I, I work at home a lot. Uh, and then sometimes I have to go, you know, there'll be a film and everyone's cutting rooms need to be in one facility. So I'll, we'll have to go and work there. But uh, I like working at home. I've got two young kids. So if I worked away from home all the time, I'd, I would just not see them very often at all. Whereas I'm quite, it, it makes it quite fortunate that even though I work long hours, I actually see my kids a lot more than a lot of people who work a nine to five in an office, you know what I mean? So it's sort of it's sort of uh, a way of doing what I do, but actually seeing my family. So just little things like I stop and have dinner, for instance, and then they go to bed and I can carry on working and stuff like that if I need to, rather than just not seeing them. So it's, it's cool. But it's a, it's a trap. I've done that too. And that you're working Saturday, Sunday, you're you're here, you're working, and then at the same time, you're doing your laundry and you're... But that, that's why I say I like it when it comes to ADR, because it, it gets to a phase of, like, only leave the house to put the bins out or something. <laughs> so it's like, I need to see people. You sort of try to strike up, strike up a conversation with the postman or something like that. So I need, to, I need to get out to do ADR. Well, I'm all about lunch. I try to get the other editors, the mixers, whatever, to go out for lunch. You've worked four hours with headphones on. You get your hour at lunch. Are you going to sit and eat at your desk? Uh, you know, it's just, if you're like me, if you're wearing headphones all day and you're really concentrating, your head is buzzing and you're like dazed. I need to get out. And I usually work in midtown Manhattan and, you know, there's like hundreds of restaurants, you know, within a five block radius. We go out, you know, find a place, do shopping or whatever. And the advantage is you don't have to take care of your own equipment. Uh, I had equipment back in the movieola days. You used to get a rental for your your little mixer and if you had sound heads or whatever. And then they said, no, we're not going to do that anymore. It was like, and then getting into computers, you know, you're constantly updating. You guys have to spend a lot of time making sure that your stuff is up to date. It's, uh, I'd much rather have some guy whose only job is tech wrangler to make sure the equipment is primo all the time you have a problem hey matt i'm having a problem he comes to your room it's it's done i've worked a few times where you know i had a q adr for monday and i'll take the laptop that i'm using home but i try to separate home and work nine to six try to get out 
if there's too much work, I get them to hire more editors. And you also work with headphones? Yeah. I do, yeah. And yeah. you, you know? Yeah, I cut on headphones. I cut on headphones so that I know if I go onto a mix stage, it's going to... I'm not going to be surprised by anything. You're right. You know, when I used to work in, in various rooms with with speakers, uh, sometimes the room itself would would obliterate some of the the defaults in the tracks. I found so I I know I'm, I trust what I'm hearing when I work with headphones. Unless you're working with a monitoring system that's set up for mixing, and who's going to pay for that to cut dialogue? Headphones seems the way to go. It's like even if you're getting good sound treated rooms. There's normally some issue with the aircon. Like it's not, it's very rare you get one where the aircon's outside of the room. So you've always, even even if it's a nicely sound treated room, you've just got this air that interferes with being able to listen to to fills and stuff. So make it make it a lot easier to cut on speakers with all that going on. And but yeah, you like Jill said, you get surprises when you go to the mixing theatre. But what headphones are you guys using? I just use HD twenty fives Sennheisers. It's a podcast, Jill. They couldn't see that. Oh, Sony. It's my Sony. <laughs> 75 I've got the ultrasounds. I have a broad collection <laughs> of headphones. When I'm supervising a TV series, I actually am doing a lot of editing on the stage while they're mixing. I'll use in-ear etymotic monitors. I've used a variety of um, these things that look like a jet airplane <laughs> uh, that have... Pretty yeah, good. the shooting range headphones. Yeah, that's pretty much what they are. I've got a pair of Sennheisers that I use when it's quiet. You know, again, having started where I was working on movieolas, where uh, there were people who would use open air headphones, you had to play it so loud to hear it over the the sound of the machine, and plus every time a splice would hit the uh, the sound head, the sound head would lift off. So you'd get clicks and, and you had to learn to interpret what you were hearing. And well, it, it, how often do you guys get to take your tracks to the mix? Because I know most people that I work with don't get to go to the mix and hear their material get mixed. Jill, are you going to the mixes? I go to feature mixes. And I'll go to the odd TV playback. But the days of, you know, sitting through a TV premix or a mix are, you know, have been gone for a long time for me. But features, I obviously try to stay there for the premix and through the final, if I can. Michael? Uh, features, yes. TV, no, not so much anymore. Which, to be honest, doesn't... It's, it's always annoying not being able to see your work mix. But with TV mixes, if they're short, they end up you end up being just like one day here, one day there, and it becomes a bit of a nightmare scheduling. So I'm not so worried about that in a way. It just sort of trashes your week, really. You've got to, you've got to commit to like one day of a week or something. So uh, it's not really worth it. But yeah, with features, always. Well, for features, uh, we used to be paid to, to go to the mix as a... Now, no longer, we're not paid. Apart from the big, uh, you know, on the Denis Villeneuve, we were supposed to sit for the whole mix for 30 days. And I never learned so much from being there, you know, with the, like a session of 300 trucks with the, it was crazy. But every time I had things to do. But apart from that time, I don't have time to go because I'm always working on another one. So uh, I get a call from the mixer. 
from time to time say hey what's what's going on there or, <laughs> because whenever i go there sometimes if i went to see gavin the other day because i had some free time and we learned so much every time it's a thing i think i've been spending a lot of time on a specific scene where i shouldn't have because everything's fine for him and on the parts that he thinks um that are fine then it's it it, it, it it's always a surprise to me to see how they work, you know, how they, mm. what they can do or they can't do sometimes. I said, well, is it that difficult to remove that thing here? Is it, uh, and sometimes. Uh, and who gets to go to a screening of the film before you start working on it or gets paid to go to a screening? No, <laughs> <laughs> not paid. That's pushing it. I got in, I got invited for this one for the first time, I think. Usually uh, when I work, pretty much always when I work on a Scorsese film, we'll have a, a paid screening. And Spike Lee, man, I, I can't tell you how many times I went to screenings, but that's... That's a real rarity. Now, this is, you know, these when we get these many people together, like, you know, it, it can it can go around and sometimes it takes a minute to really spin up and, and you know, there's there's cool stuff that happens. What we should do is go offline here and so how much have you been paid? Right. <laughs> well, it's definitely worth everyone. Everyone's got each other's info now, too. So, we, you know, I was talking to um, to somebody else and, you know, he and I are going to set up like a monthly phone call just so we can chat because I'm, I'm a little bit isolated out here in Dallas, too. And so, you know, there's no excuse anymore to, to remain isolated anymore, at least from my perspective. So it's just a matter of, of finding the people you want to talk to. And if they're willing, hooking up with them and talking to them, booking it, scheduling it like a session. Yeah, no, it's fascinating to chat. Sure. I mean, one of the things that surprised me from the off um considering what massive films you've, you've all worked on is how short your schedule are you're saying four to six weeks which i almost want this, don't want this to be played in uk because the post supervisors will hear about it and start reducing <laughs> our time but like for us i don't know do you when you say four to six weeks do you mean just that just for the dialogue editing time do you get adr on top of that and your mix time on top of that a four-week job would be probably two dialogue editors but not necessarily on a low budget thing you just on oh, a low budget thing yeah but here in new york or the u.s that the union has these low budget jobs that the national union signs the contract there they come in Tier one, two, three, and tier zero. I say they should spell that T E A R because <laughs> anyone who's working on a tier zero is is crying because they're being paid minimum wage. You know, it's so. Why did I bring this up? <laughs> yeah, so uh, uh, the schedule doing a feature in four weeks, I'm supposedly supervising a film where. I'll be a glorified dialogue editor. It looks like I'll have five weeks to cut six reels, which is one week less than what I would consider to be minimal. And, you know, you just, there's, if, if they think that they're getting the same level of work, they're mistaken. You know, they're, I know all sorts of shortcuts, but, um, that's the tough thing, though, isn't it? Because no director of a low-budget film in the final mix ever goes, oh, it's all right, you didn't have very long, it's okay, it doesn't matter, you know. <laughs> they don't know. I mean, the vast 
majority of them, they don't really know the difference. You know, we're, we're making the Fabergé eggs of our time. And, and the people that are in charge are, are all dilettantes, with a few exceptions. They really don't know the difference between a well-crafted egg and, and you know, one that's... Uh, Scrambled. I'm jaded. I'm old. <laughs> <laughs> we'll all get through it together. Well, when we first started this podcast, one of the things that we wanted to do, we noticed lots of people were working at home and such, and we were losing that kind of, uh, as you were saying, Fred, going out to lunch together. So we kind of wanted to start the podcast to let people l- at least listen to other people having conversations and I think this has been a really great conversation that people really want to listen to. It's a subject that I don't think is covered very much online. This has been really cool, and thank you very much again for taking part. Yeah, and you know there was a reason I was also asking a lot about what you would talk to um, production mixers and picture editors about too, because I think this type of conversation is a really good resource for people like that that are on the other that are on either edge of what this process is. Uh, that's definitely something I would love to um, get the chance to spend more time seeing what production mixers do because it's so easy for us when we get the tracks to go, oh, what's going on with that boom? And you just you got no <laughs> idea of the hell they probably went through, and you know we just sit in judgment. And it's, it's tricky because you can't judge it really, you know, unless you're able to have a conversation with the director and go, no, there was no, you know, it should have been fine and stuff. You, you can never really judge it because you don't know what nightmares they've had or what or put, although you see it more and more in sheets these days with production uh the, the sound recorders full um they write almost like a sort of legal document and was like i, I, I asked <laughs> Look, they I made asked me do this it. <laughs> but uh, so and so said no or something like that so it's just like written as proof yeah they'll frequently write things like i really tried to get them to turn the generator off on yes. this but they went to <laughs> Yeah, it's funny. But, I always find I find that I, if I am cutting really great tracks, things that you know I'm not used to working with that I really enjoy working with, I will always reach out to them and tell them that I've appreciated their work and to keep doing what they're doing. Spoiling them, so important. <laughs> I mean, that that's happened like once probably in the past five years. Yeah. That I've done that. But I mean, I always notice it. I've done it for sure. Like when something comes in and it's and it's it's something that that I'm enjoying working on, I will absolutely go figure out who the heck recorded it and let them know that it was yeah. cool. Or sometimes there's coverage there that you wouldn't expect. There's an enormous yes. amount of wild coverage, or there's something that's like, wow, I can't believe this exists. And it has. There was one film I worked on recently where um, every technical issue I had was covered in a wild take, and I, uh, I had zero ADR. And that's when your when your director and your AD had your production mixers back, and therefore you're back as well. That's right. I mean, such a huge difference. Uh, thanks to everyone who listens and participates in the show. Thanks for jumping on with us, all of you today. You can follow the show at the Tonebenders on Twitter and go to tonebenderspodcast.com to leave a comment. You can support the podcast by shopping at tonebenderspodcast.com slash Amazon or tonebenderspodcast.com slash BH. Thanks, everyone, for, for an awesome conversation. This was very cool of everybody. And we'll see you all next time. Bye. Thank you. Cheers, guys. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for listening to Tonebenders. You can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you listen on iTunes or Stitcher, please write us a review while you're there. To support the show, go to ToneBendersPodcast.com and click through our Amazon link or leave us a tip. You can also download and listen to our entire show archive there and leave a comment on our site or on SoundCloud. 
keep up to date by following at the Tone Vendors on Twitter or find Tone Vendors Podcast on Facebook. Email us with your questions and ideas at info at tonevendorspodcast.com.